Welcome to Making Coffee, a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into making one of the world's favorite beverages. I'm your host, Lucia Solis, a former winemaker turned coffee processing specialist. Thanks for joining this week's episode. Hi friends, welcome back to Making Coffee. It's been quite a fulfilling and busy year for me here in Colombia. I was finally able to realize my dream of hosting a fermentation training camp in July, and then we had a second one in September, and I can't believe it, but now we're having our third one in January. The dates are January 16th through the 20th. At the time of publishing this episode, it's the first week of November, there are only five spots left available if you would like to join me in Colombia. So don't know what you're waiting for, but buy your ticket if you want to come and hang out with us and process coffee. I will leave a link to the website in the show notes if you want to buy a ticket or learn more about the event. Now, on to today's episode. I'm excited to share today's episode with you because it was a long time in the making. I recently had the opportunity to talk to Vava Angwenyi, a very inspiring woman in the small world of specialty coffee. If you don't know who Vava is, I am so excited for you because I believe listeners of this podcast will really resonate with her message and her straightforward manner. This podcast was a little bit challenging to record because she's in rural Kenya and I'm in rural Colombia and we both had very poor internet at opposite times. And then there was also an eight hour time difference. And it just made me think that this conversation would never happen. Uh, we had, we were cut off like three or four times during the recording. And that was after we had already tried three or four times to set a date. And anyway. So all that to say that I really thought this conversation would never happen, but we were finally able to connect and to talk, and while we have never met, we both felt an immediate connection. Vava is a sustainable farming advocate, author, and business owner. She has created a sustainable and ethical coffee brand that sources coffee from farmers in Kenya. Vava recently served on the Specialty Coffee Association Board from 2019 to 2020 on the Finance and Sustainability Committees. She recently authored a book called Coffee Milk Blood. The book is a project inspired by her own experiences as an African woman in the industry, and the theme of the book touches on appropriate storytelling slash depiction of producers, how producers want to be seen beyond coffee, the culture of the place, as well as underpinnings of colonialism. Baba's vision is to change the status quo and promote positive social disruption within the coffee industry. In this conversation, we talked about the challenges of the specialty coffee market in Kenya, how important mutual respect is in the industry between buyers and producers, what the future of specialty coffee looks like, and colonialism in coffee and processing in Kenya. All right, let's get started with Vava. I was going to say, I think it's it's interesting that we're having such trouble connecting because you're somebody that I've wanted to talk to for a long time, and even the many <laughs> times that we've tried to connect, uh, it's been quite difficult. I know, and I'm in Nairobi now, so I'm like, that's why I was like, let me hit up Lucia this week. I'm back. I'm not in Lamu, so we can, you know, have a swift conversation because I know how frustrating it's been the last few times we've tried to speak. But yeah. um, I have I, I have faith that this is going to work out well, this this one now. <laughs> I do too. So it's this, this really interesting feeling where we've never really been able to have, uh, you know, a good conversation. We don't know each other. And yet there was something about when I first started to, you know, hear about you where I was just like, I feel like we're friends. I feel like I know 
this person. I feel like there's so much in common. I don't know how we're not friends. I think the first mm-hmm. time, I mean, I live on a mountain in Colombia. I live under a rock. I'm really very antisocial. So I was very late <laughs> to, to like learning about your work, but it was, I guess, in 2020 uh-huh. when your book came out and I just saw the title, mm-hmm. Coffee, Milk, Blood. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, I want to have a drink with that chick. Like, I feel like <laughs> somebody who <laughs> names their book blood. I'm just like, I feel like I want to get a drink with you. <laughs> well, well, well. So today, I don't know what time is it in Colombia. It's It must be like... Um, it's 1030 in the morning, but I am a day drinker, uh, 100%. So let, we can drink. I'm drinking a gin and tonic right now. So grab a cerveza or whatever or... <laughs> Yeah, and I, let's d- have I definitely a have some wine. Drink. <laughs> <laughs> and funny enough, when I also like um heard about you, I was like, how is it that I've never met this person? Like how? She's like a sister from another mother, like we we say sometimes. And I was like, um, everything she's saying, I'm like, oh. And I think I listened to like consecutive consecutively over like two days, like five of your episodes, and I was like, nah. How is it that I don't know this person that I started racking my brain? I was like, is this the same Lucia that, um, what's his name? Turka keeps talking about. Yeah. So then I, I texted Turka and I was like, I gotta, I, you, you, you gotta tell her that I said hi. And I'm sorry that I've not been paying attention every time you talk about Lucia. <laughs> <laughs> it, it took me moving to, to Lamu, starting a, a coffee business in Lamu to like finally listen to, to your podcast but i'm glad we're finally having this conversation today and hope you have your drink so cheers cheers eh? well yeah and it's it's really funny too that there's so much crossover between our philosophies and our message and we come at it from pretty different backgrounds and pretty different perspectives i think you more of a economics business and me much more from a science but it's like the Mm -hmm. same types of things piss us off about the coffee industry and I was so yeah. surprised to see, um, you know, I have an episode about, you know, how we use the word empowerment. And I feel like so much mm-hmm. of your book is about empowerment and like this kind of bastardization of it. And so just a lot of themes yeah. like that, that I just feel like, w- I, yeah, we just wanted to have a conversation. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Can we start there? Can we, can we go a little bit towards the journey of, of the book and, and where that title came from, Coffee, Milk, Blood, and how how you felt that that like has that had an impact have you felt like that book you know what has been sort of the aftermath of of writing that um well I never you know the the book to be honest came out of like um years and years of like being in an industry where you don't feel like you're being heard or seen and yet uh people still expect you to do everything that they expect you to do but you're like but nobody's listening to what we need nobody's listening to what we produce as at origin, like what people really want. So, and then, so the title itself is, um, what can I say? It's, 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 it's like a pouring of uh, frustration um, and, and trying to fuse my culture with uh, a, a, the colonial past. Cause I feel like coffee is a bloody industry in the sense that, it is colonialism, even if we pretend that we're doing good by farmers, but like a lot of the structures that we still operate in are very colonial. So, but the way I try to put the book across was um, both, you know, talking from an emotional standpoint as as a Kenyan uh, woman who 
has um, sort of forged a place for myself in the industry, but oftentimes you're you're just perceived, you know, in um, the typical sort of gaze of like, yeah, you know, what is she going to say? Like, you know, just the expectation of what industry and society expects you to be and, and all the things that women are told not to be, but the fire keeps burning in you. So like when I called it coffee milk blood, it's a fusion of my culture as a, as a Kenyan, as a Maasai woman who in my community, we drink milk and blood as well. So I was like, okay, let me talk about where I'm from, whereby milk and blood are a thing. Um, and, and also now on top of that plug in coffee, which is now my life. Um, have I seen an impact from the book? Yes. And surprisingly so, because um, funny enough, the book was really well received um, within the industry. Of course, let me not say funny enough. I'm just like, I wanted to write a piece of work and put out imagery that was impactful and that told a story of how we want to be seen as producers or how we want to be seen as people who work in producing countries and from also a woman's gaze of don't limit who I am by putting me in boxes. And this is who we are. And this is who I am. And this is how other women that we work with want to be perceived and not just your farmer with the dirty hands and dirty feet. And cause I'm, I'm it's, it's a bunch of things, Lucia, like even just the frustration with how people market coffee and still in, in a very, boring and and sort of like in in a white man's gaze you know like let's limit how we celebrate coffee to this so in the book i talk about how coffee should actually be celebrating the cultures and the, the diversity of the places in which coffee is grown and then again because oftentimes i hear or people you go to a meeting you go to an expo and someone's like you don't look like a coffee farmer you don't sound like you work with farms I was like how do how do people like that sound like and how do they look like so so I'm I'm happy with the reception and I'm actually um headed to do like a a proper book launch in the UK next month and like some talks about it because I never really launched the book or like went and and did like speaking engagements so I'm sort of doing that together with like a, a mini exhibition of the photography from the book so yeah no I love that That's and I, pleasure, yeah. I really want to go back to or I want to get back to this idea of, of viewing coffee producers differently and how your book has accomplished that in terms of those beautiful graphic pictures and seeing literally seeing coffee producers in colorful beautiful garments and in just a, a much more different view but before that I, I feel like it might be helpful to kind of give listeners a little bit of context and a little bit of background into coffee in Kenya because I think that it's mm -hmm. a it's a pretty unique system where we tend to lump a lot of countries uh, a lot of countries together and I think something that was surprising to me was when I, I haven't been to Kenya but I went to Rwanda and I went to Burundi and having uh, you know, I was a kid in Guatemala and now I live in Colombia. And once mm -hmm. I got there, uh, I stepped off the plane and, and I was expecting, you know, Africa to be a completely different place. And I stepped off the plane and I was like, no, nah, it kind of looks like home. We have back beans, mm -hmm. we're eating platanos. Like, you know, mm -hmm. I, I just felt very comfortable there. And we also mm -hmm. have a mutual friend, uh, Rose Bella, who came from Kenya to Colombia to do one of the workshops. 
And she mm-hmm. stepped off the plane and she sort of looked around and she's like, yeah, looks like home. Looks like Kenya. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a lot of, we think, you know, they're very separate places, but there's a lot of similarities and you've spent time in Colombia as well. So I, mm-hmm. I first would like to know a little bit about what you see some of the similarities um, between Kenya and Colombia that you've spent time here and then how Kenya and the auction system and the buying system is very different from what we're used to in Latin America. Well, just like you said, I mean, I, I, when I got to Colombia, I was like, this is Africa, this is home, this is Tanzania, this is Kenya. Um, and even going to Rosbella's farm, because she's a producer we've been working with for the last, I'll say, two years. Um, her farm reminds me a lot of places that I went to in uh, Medellin and Santa Marta. And um, for me, there's so many similarities with just the, the landscape and the culture. I gravitate, a big part of my soul, I feel is Latina, to be honest, uh, because I think I sort of feel like I have that, you know, the passion that Latinas have that they can kill for. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I know, seriously, I was like, I, I, when, I, when I'm passionate about something, I'm just like, and I, and I keep telling my fellow Kenyans, I was like, I wish you guys could see how passionate Latinos are and like how they, you know, when they, 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 they really want to do something, the energy and everything. And so I feel like, so there's, there's so many crossovers there with landscape and also like um, having worked with a Colombian partner for years, um, whom we started Gente del Futuro with is just seeing how his work in Tanzania sort of translate like his learnings as a coffee producer in Colombia were like he managed to copy and paste that in Tanzania in terms of just um especially processing and the the agronomy side of it so one thing that I I really admire Colombia for is just how further on they are with helping producers with knowledge um you look at the the fnc and all those like uh, organizations that really um even invent tools that um are suitable for smallholder farmers that are affordable uh you look at um having worked with an agronomist from um colombia for quite a while who also came and did an intervention with some of our producers in kenya those are some of the things that i i feel that i've taken from colombia that was so valuable to me is just um how knowledgeable um, uh, the, what do you call them? In, in Kenya, we call them the extension officers, but how knowledgeable the the agronomists who work with the producers are and how advanced Colombia is in terms of technology when it comes to, to coffee production. Um, then uh, when it comes to, of course, the trade, Colombia is totally different. I mean, Kenya is what I hear from everyone and what I've experienced myself is we have a very complex type of sort of trading system that a lot of people kind of get frazzled to understand. And and I keep telling people, you, you kind of have to maybe go through an entire season and understand how we trade. So when people even ask me how we work, um, we, we do two things. We buy directly, but we also buy at the auction. And mm, like close to 90% of Kenyan coffee is traded at the auction. So even if um, when we started out, we wanted to buy majority of our coffees directly. It was close to impossible because farmers, a lot of the times also do favor the auction because sometimes depending on the markets, there's really good prices at the auction, especially with what, what's been happening, happening with trends in the market in the last two years, a lot of farmers will 
counter your offer with what's at the auction and they're like hey at the auction a double a was was going for this can you improve your offer and if you're buying directly you you definitely have to improve your offer by a couple of um you know a couple of dollars uh, so that the farmers can actually sell to you directly. So as a business, you then have to sort of look at your risk and analyze which lots are you getting at the auction, which ones are you maintaining a direct relationship. Um, and one thing I've come to appreciate about the Kenyan system is that there's a lot of data. Like if if I was to go back to my uni days, um, I would now be able to to write a really good thesis and, you know, sort of write a good paper is what I was proposing with derivatives because there's massive data and week on week after the the trade happens, uh, reports are sent out, you know what, what coffee sold for what and the volume. Uh, so that's one thing I like about the Kenyan system is just the organization of data under one sort of house. And if you were to analyze statistics for like an entire trading season, region to region, farm to farm, it's there for those um, coffees that are traded at the auction. And also it helps you sort of like map out Kenya. Interestingly, like you can literally tell a story just from the auction system. Of course, there are things about the auction system that I'm, um, that we're all unhappy about certain policies that inhibit producers from selling their own coffees and being their own representatives. So then, um, that brings about a system whereby there's so many licenses that you have to obtain in order to be a miller, to be a marketer, to be, and, and as a producer, you can't outrightly go and sell your own coffee to someone. You have to go through an exporter like myself. And even if ironically for myself, my family has coffee, I can't be the producer face that is, oh, I'm selling coffee from our farm it's illegal you see so that's there's irony in all of these things so then i have to be the exporter with the export license and then someone in my family has to be the the producer and then you know i don't know if, if i'm making sense but i'm like so these are some of the things that are really crazy but it, it all stems down to how um colonial structures were set up and as a nation we, we're still struggling to to really um, create a system that speaks to Kenya now, that speaks to maybe young people wanting to get into the business. So that's a snippet of it, but I'm happy for you to like ask any other questions that if if you need um, me to yeah. elaborate, but it's a, it's something that really, yeah, that needs, like if there's a specific question, I'm happy to, to, to answer that. Well, I'm just very curious about the system because the, the trend in specialty is direct trade and transparency and, you know, this very romantic idea that a, a roaster in in Florida would want to go to a farm in Honduras and speak directly to the producer and buy their coffee and and have it, you know, have it be the, the smallest chain possible. And that is not possible in Kenya. And I think a lot of people don't don't realize how different the system is. And I'm curious too if if in some ways Kenya is going to be um, left behind if they're not kind of updating some of these models. Or do you think that the system is so strong that Kenya is still going to be a very powerful player in coffee? I I, I would correct you by saying that it is not impossible to have a direct relationship with producers. We have forged direct relationships between our buyers and producers. Some who the coffee doesn't go to the auction. We do the direct sales. But even with the auction lots, we're able to create those relationships where 
um the and and i like the fact that you used romanticized notion because a lot of a lot of what i see sometimes even as direct trade is really not direct trade it's more someone just wanting to go visit a farm and take some photos and then like the lolas still push you down on price and maybe not even buy your entire production so i find that there's very few importers or roasters who can actually who we can actually say have direct relationships um if it's not just like a photo shoot that they go do and whatever and learn about what's happening but i mean I, I stand to be corrected but i don't think that there's a large proportion of of um roasters who can claim that um it's not impossible in kenya to have a direct relationship depending on who your exporter is and that is where Vava Coffee comes in because we we take the time and effort to 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 build these relationships. Um, with a co-op, of course, a lot harder because that's a group of like a thousand plus producers you're talking about. But we have uh, buyers who, if they insist that they want a particular coffee season to season, we we provide it for them. If they want statistics on that particular co-op, we do the extra work. We provide that as the the add-on or the you know the extra as to working with us if you want a particular estate year on year same as rosbella this is why we we managed to link up rosbella with be it square mile be it with um, tucker because i know rosbella's farm i go there i talk to her regularly i monitor progress and not many people i can tell you not many exporters in kenya have put in that time and effort it's like no i'm buying coffee at the auction i'm selling it whoever wants photos um we'll see you know so a lot of exporters still operate like in the traditional sense of i'm a trader that's it whoever buys buys whoever doesn't well and good and they have their market but as a, as as vava coffee with um because we we actually when i got into the industry i was also super naive about how the kenyan system works I got my ass kicked so many times that reality sank in and I was like, okay, I have to diversify my sourcing base. There's coffees of, you know, from producers who will never want to engage. They just want you to buy and, and leave them alone. And then there's those who actually still want to work with you and they want a guarantee season to season. So oftentimes I, uh, nowadays I'm like, I'm, a, I'm more educated about the system once I aggressively started trading and I learned that there is a benefit one to having an auction system because it does actually, it, to a sense, to a large extent, it does protect farmers because otherwise we would just have importers or buyers just swooping into Kenya, giving farmers whatever price and going, you know, mm -hmm. that's, and that is why I like the auction system in a sense, because we set a standard for ourselves as Kenya. We're like the double A this week, was sold for $6.5 minimum. So that we always use that as a benchmark. And that is a benchmark for all direct sales. And I feel that the auction system does provide a protection for coffee producers. Otherwise, people will just be landing in Nyeri and saying, hey, we're buying all the production for $3 a kilo. And what would what would farmers do? Nothing, because there's no systems in place that actually help govern. Of course, there's certain other things within all of that like i've mentioned that that are not great but i find that for uh, accountability for traceability as well because the auction does provide 
levels of traceability, um, which I mean, people don't understand, but I'm like, if I was to give you the data that is available to us as coffee traders, just from the auction system, it's invaluable. Like I could, um, one of my next projects is actually just like diving deep into this data and, and doing something with it, like telling the story of, um, coffee trends in Kenya, region to region for, although the, the, the coffee exchange does write reports, but perhaps the reports are not as palatable as if someone in the private sector took it and, and did something with it that, I don't know, that the consuming countries would actually like finally understand that there's good to this system. Do you think, are you seeing um, maybe not as much experimentation from producers in terms of processing in Kenya as much as we've seen in other countries because they have kind of this, uh, I don't know, reputation or kind of this standardizing uh, force? Um, yeah, that's a good question because I, I recently had a uh, a moment trying to explain to a buyer that in Kenya, experimentation is there, but only with the guarantee that you're buying the coffee. So oftentimes farmers, after being sort of taking a hit once or twice, they they will not experiment unless you, you pre-finance the whole process because, and why they do this is because natural coffees, if, you, if you're calling it a natural, if you're calling it a semi-washed, if you're calling it a honey or a carbonic, whatever process cannot sell at the auction. If it goes to the auction, it will sell as a regular coffee and the farmer will lose out on any premium that they would have gotten on that coffee. So that's a risk that producers are not willing to take. And I've seen this happen when farmers have been told produce naturals, we have a buyer, they produce like a hundred or 200 bags of a natural, it doesn't sell. The coffee then goes as a low grade coffee because in Kenya, a natural is classified as Ambuni. So on the coffee catalog, you'll find it classified as an MH, which Funny enough, if you're a curious individual and you have time and you go through all of the samples week on week, you can discover some amazing, amazing naturals on the catalog, but not everyone like, not everyone is like looking or like, is that curious? So often in sometimes some of these good naturals are bypassed, but now that there's this demand, because there's a huge demand right now, um, of naturals from various parts, especially I would say Saudi and um, you know, the, the Arab countries, uh, and we, as Kenya, we are not able to meet the demand. So, um, any producers who are being asked to, um, you know, do a, a process that is not part of, you know, a washed Kenyan is asking for pre-financing because if they, if you don't buy the coffee, then they lose out and then they, they get shafted in the end. So that is correct that Kenyan, is less experimental in the, in that in that case because there won't be a home for the coffee. Well, I think it's interesting too because as as you're pointing out, as has been proven, these other processes are at least with the natural process, it's a lot less uh, equipment intensive, so it's very tempting to process your coffee in that way. But in terms of processing, it creates a lot more difference. Like these are and the honey process as well, they create a coffee that's more inconsistent. So coffee is already a difficult product to become consistent because it's, you know, it's not like a wine where you can have a 50,000 gallon tank and it will be homogenous. Everything, every single drop in there, if you mix it well enough, will be homogenous. With coffee mm -hmm. being a semi-solid, we have all of these variabilities and cup to cup variations. 
And then if you do a natural or a honey, you're exaggerating those differences. So it actually takes a lot more skill to create this consistency mm -hmm. that is just built into the wash process. So I'm wondering, though, um, kind of going back to the theme of education, as much more producers get some of, you know, basic information on how to make these other processes more consistent, I think it could definitely be because it's like this, it's both this tool for producers to, you know, become empowered by differentiating their coffee by saying, I have some uh, you know, like, like, mm -hmm. like a chef saying, this is my recipe. This is my interpretation mm -hmm. of this coffee. Whereas, you mm -hmm. know, something that I talk about a lot is we've asked producers to kind of fade into the background and, ha and have the coffee be transparent and speak for itself and, you know, not have any like taint of the process. And mm -hmm. if we can flip that paradigm and say, no, producers have a say in how they are interpreting their coffee, then that's very mm -hmm. powerful. But because there's so little information and everyone's just kind of making stuff up as they go along and there's not a lot of support for producers, mm -hmm. like you're saying, if, if you're not paying for the coffee in advance, it takes some capital, it takes some amount of investment to get different tanks or to buy yeast or something like that. So it's kind of wild that this tool that could be used in one way right now is, is a very scary and a very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? like a, a risk it's it's even more risky for a population that is very risk averse and has a lot of kind of downward pressure so i'm kind of wondering how you've seen sort of the the theme of processing being applied in, in kenya well as as someone who works very closely with farmers i can tell you i'm super like i'm extremely passionate about differentiating kenyan coffees but i was just like if i had like extra cash i would totally be doing uh, new processing methods all the time, everywhere. And I think um, the trend is is there. It's going to come up, but also how willing are roasters and importers willing to open their wallets for this to happen? And also how open-minded are some of, say, this big buyers? Because you'll find that something that I've, I've also experienced is that there's, there's also like a pushback anytime... I'm trying to really sell a coffee that is not from your typical Kenyan producing region. Like there's, I know buyers who don't want to look at a coffee from the Eastern part of Kenya. They only focus on central Kenya. So I'm like, how open-minded are importers and, and other roasters to not putting Kenyan coffee in a box uh, for lack of a better way of, of, of saying it and, and trying new Kenyans and trying new things that uh kenyan farmers want to 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 produce because kenyan farmers are willing because right now they're willing but also they have their terms and conditions so and kenya kenyans we're known as real hustlers like we hear that there's money in something we want a piece of that cake so we just have to figure out what works for us and how it works best for us. And I know that there's folks who are willing to to sort of uh, to pre-finance and to also provide knowledge. So the aspect of training the farmer to do a certain process, there's um, lots of people willing to do that, but there's also the that risk aspect that I mentioned. Um, but I also wanna push back with that question and say, I think there's a willingness with producers. However, because Kenya has been perceived as this uh, taste profile and i this this is something that also pisses me off sometimes when i'm in a cupping room and everyone is like oh that's a typical kenyan and i was like there's nothing like a typical kenyan it's like <laughs> saying that someone can never 
be something else and you're putting them in a box and you're limiting that person's potential. And I'm like, given everything that we've encountered with climate change, with, um, you know, inflation, I'm like, trust me, farmers are, are, are struggling to, to survive season on season, especially when they don't have guarantees for markets. So if you tell a farmer, when I tell my farmers, hey, guys, try this semi-washed coffee, I'll find you a market for it. They trust me. But then the, the question that follows is, um, can you give us an advance so that we can do this thing? Uh, but then I'm also like, because I see as someone who sits on this side and I interact with roasters and importers, I'm like, I see the potential in that. But then I'm like, um, what if I go with this coffee? It's cost an 86. But then someone is like, I just want the Kenyan that taste that has that tomato taste and whatever, whatever that people always, I don't know if you get where my flow with this, but I'm just like, there's also that other side of always being seen as one thing and not other things. So yeah, I, I think wish, unfortunately, yeah, because then, we don't have the video, you can't see me nodding along, but I think this is a really <laughs> important point and I'm really glad that you're bringing it up because I think that what a lot of people don't realize, like the traditionalists that want this typical profile, that want a Kenyan to taste like a Kenyan or a Guatemalan to taste like a Guatemalan coffee, um, mm -hmm. on the other side of your comfort, on the other side of your romanticism is you know, you're, you're limiting, you're putting handcuffs on people to say, you can't be mm -hmm. anything else. And the whole, yeah, like you're saying, the climate is changing. There's so many other pressures and you still need to be like, you can't change everything around you as a producer is changing, but yeah. somehow you have to maintain this profile for again, somebody else's comfort. And I find that mm -hmm. so frustrating because we do know how to to change these flavors we do know and it can be very simple and it can be very accessible for producers and so it's it's not really a question of technology it's more of a question of like empathy like we can mm -hmm. do these things are we going to like allow other people to do that and this idea of like allowing i find really uncomfortable of like i'm gonna allow you <laughs> to do something with like to, your life and finally, your business exactly it's like we're we're in chains still. And I keep saying is that um, someone asked me recently, how do we decolonize um, coffee? And I was like, dude, this is a whole thesis because it's we're going to have to go into colonialism and how this is all about power. And I'm like, unfortunately, because we don't consume this, this, this product the way we should, we're still at the mercy. Even if we say um, we're empowering farmers, sometimes all of this stuff is fake because... The rules and standards that we abide by are all set by the consuming countries, the flavor will, the the quality standards. And I'm like, some of this stuff is just like you're you're hitting your head on the wall every day, trying to tell farmers you're empowering them, but you're really dictating to them what they should do. So. Absolutely. Wait, I, you know, I wanted to ask you something. It's just I'm mm -hmm. really curious when you're asking your question about, you know, haggling and people that are wanting to get a deal. Do you feel mm -hmm. like you can't say no because the producers depend on you and you need to get a sale? Or do you feel like maybe they're right? Maybe it isn't worth what you think it's worth. Like, where is that like tension coming from? For me, it's okay. It's coming. I never, I never feel like um, that I have to, unless like we're in that desperate situation where like there's a repercussion if they drop the bags and then now you have to find a home but if someone is asking for something unreasonable i can't do that of course we don't say that if you know 
our pricing is also volume based. So if someone is buying like a whole container, there's a whole back and forth until we agree. So that's, I don't call that haggling. It's more like something that makes business sense. If someone's buying like 300 bags, mm-hmm. as opposed to someone haggling over 10 bags or 20 bags and, and someone just generally saying your, your coffee is expensive. Can you give me a deal without even giving an indication of which coffees they want or whatever. So for me, it's that standpoint of just dismissing um, you're dismissing a transaction and and even like just talking in a blanket like manner about the entire selection without even saying what if you've capped the coffees because i'm like first of all have you capped the coffees do you like them what do you like how much are you picking okay then let's talk and then you know like that whole pushback it's i, I don't want to like to be honest i had a very bad bad experience like with someone a couple of months ago that that really it 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 just crystallized the fact that they were not a, a good person to work with, and I had to cut them off, like yeah. because of also how how they spoke to me, they in a very condescending manner, and they said they can find cheap coffee, and I said go, I'm not in the business of selling cheap coffee. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. like if you're looking for cheap coffee, I don't deal in cheap coffee. Go elsewhere. So that was like one really bad recent incident, which um. I'm reeling from and I was like I may lose this business but it's okay we'll we'll pick up the business elsewhere yeah I think that's something that's been important for me to learn kind of as my as my journey is that the more people that I have like that that are around like they take up space and and it doesn't allow for the better people or the right people to come so it's a little bit of that like Mm. kind of gotta leave the room and as as an immigrant like I I have I, I was raised with a lot of insecurity, meaning there's not enough. Like, you know, there's the, the story, the narrative was like, you got to grab what you can when you can, because you don't know when there's going to be more. And I've really had to unlearn that and just be like, there's enough, there's enough business for everybody. Like Mm -hmm. I, I'm going to be okay. It's Mm -hmm. taken a long time. (sighs) That's wild. Um, let me get you to read your, um, Mm -hmm. to read the excerpt because I want to include that whenever you're ready. If we are indeed trying to empower communities, both men and women alike, let us improve our listening mechanisms and ask these communities what they really need. Let us not labor them with costs attached to these certification programs and quality accreditations that simply create more barriers to entry for producers. However, I have to say that there's a paradox in the sense that if you empower or regenerate, or you enter into a partnership that fundamentally affects the power balance, then it's like a parent and a child. As a parent, you enable an independence, which means that a child won't necessarily look at the world the way you do. So if you want to get away from the colonial notion of empowerment, then that means you have to take really high risks because you're enabling things to happen, which may not then seem to be exactly what you would have wanted. In other words, you can't empower and secure regenerative actions and at the same time exercise control. That's yeah. exactly the perfect one because mm-hmm. something that I've seen a lot or kind of heard these stories where, again, these, you know, roasters, very, you know, well-meaning, they do want to pay more. They are trying to get more involved. They're like, oh, you need a pulper. We can help you buy equipment. And then mm-hmm. when they give the money and it's not used exactly how they want it or for the things that they want, then they get very upset. Mm-hmm. 
And it's like, yeah. well, why are you allowed to say this money can only be used for buying a pulper instead of yeah. instead of a farmer taking his family on a vacation or something? Like, <laughs> yes, that's what they want I to swear. do. I've had so many weird stories, like even for me, how people judge. Like you'll find a producer visiting. I remember a friend of mine told me an Ethiopian producer was like he hosted a buyer once and they saw his apartment and they're like, this is where you're taking the money, huh? And I was like, huh? Wow. I was like, how dare you? I was like, so producers, and that is one thing that is so fucked up because I'm like, uh, a lot of, let me not say a lot, like there's this weird buyers and importers who just want producers to be poor or look poor and then they're happy. And it's that whole romanticization of poverty. And I'm like, come on guys. Like a producer can't buy a car. They can't buy nice clothes. They can't take their family out for dinner celebrate a good harvest a good sale come on exactly because as long as you look poor then i feel better about helping you but if you look like you're exactly if you look like you're You're balling if you look like you're balling out of control they're like "Uh uh-uh vava is using the money to buy jeeps (laughs) (laughs) she's like she's doing her hair with our money (laughs) (laughs) i was just gonna say that yeah so it's wild that's that's where i just don't see so much progress or and and again like I almost see us kind of regressing because we like pat ourselves on our back and we're like look we're we're so generous we're doing such good things and I'm like but your Mm -hmm. mind is still your Your mind is still a mess and yeah and even the most um good intentioned I found even I've had some weird experiences like even the most good intentioned people they come you're taking them on a trip they ask you the weirdest questions about your lifestyle you know they're like oh so you live in this neighborhood uh-huh and then then they start going down to questions to to sort of figure out where you're getting your in because i was like wait a minute so you're working with me because you still want me to be poor that's is that a good relationship right where it's... one person is poor the whole time <laughs> it's it's so weird how we don't even question that like so many people have that baseline and you don't realize i'm like okay this is a really fucked up thing to be thinking this is a really messed up um assumption mm-hmm. anyway yeah, yeah thank you totally thank you for sharing totally that up. yeah that's why i'm just like it's i don't know it's it's messed up but i think it's it's structures colonial structures and and mindsets that may take generations to change thanks again to vava for persisting and getting this conversation on the record so what did you guys think would you like to talk to vava yourself if you hop over to patreon.com slash making coffee, you can support the show. The patrons make it possible for me to carve time out of my week to make these episodes and to have them available for free to everyone else. In addition to supporting me and the podcast, members have access to the live office hours. Office hours is like a podcast after the podcast that we get to make together. In an upcoming live office hours, I will have Vava on to continue the conversation we started and to let you guys ask her your questions. The date of the office hours will be announced in my newsletter and on Instagram. But remember, this opportunity is only for Patreon members. For as little as $3 a month, you can become a member and not just talk to me, but also have access to the cool community of coffee professionals that listen to the podcast. Are you a coffee producer who has questions about processing? On Discord, you can connect with other producers who want to share their experiences. Are you a roaster looking to make more direct connections with producers? Or maybe you're a coffee enthusiast who wants to meet other coffee nerds and talk about your coffee obsession. 
On our Discord channel, you can connect directly with people from every part of the coffee chain and from around the world. I know how annoying it is to join another thing, another platform. I am totally with you. I'm completely tech-phobic. But I've been surprised at how valuable a tool Discord has turned out to be. So I hope to see you guys there. Oh, and that's another cool part of the Office Hours. It's a live video, so I get to meet you guys and see you, which makes it way more fun. So, okay, if you haven't joined yet, I'm not sure what you're waiting for. It's a really cool space, and I'm really happy that we get to all to sort of meet up and hang out there. Anyway, I'm also looking forward to meeting some of you in person in January for the fermentation training camp. Again, a link with dates and prices is in the show notes. And if you enjoy listening and get value out of these episodes, please share with a friend who loves coffee or wine. And for episode updates, consider subscribing to my free and infrequent newsletter at luxia.coffee, L-U-X-I-A. And that is also where I will post the dates for our Discord Live office hours with Vava. All right. Thanks for listening. And remember, life's too short to drink bad coffee. Thank you.